Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Prince Andrew reaches a settlement with Virginia Dufresne, who'd accused the royal of sexual assault. Could the days of our kids wearing masks in school be coming to an end? There are reports it may be dropped next week. I discuss the positives and the negatives of that with our panel tonight. Also, the cost of living in the countryside. Farmers protest at supermarket doors over cost pressures in their sector. The price of food has to go up now. We cannot sustain the, the massive increases that we have seen over the last number of, of months now. We, we take a look at how rural families are coping with the squeeze and later why travel agents are saying book early if you want that summer getaway. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. begin tonight with the situation on the Ukraine-Russia border. Earlier today, Russia said they were moving some troops back from the Ukrainian border after conducting drills in a possible sign of de-escalation. In the last few hours, President Biden said that a Russian invasion is still distinctly possible, but he wants to give diplomacy a chance. Yesterday, the Russian government publicly proposed to continue the diplomacy. I agree. We should give the diplomacy every chance to succeed. And I believe there are real ways to address our respective security concerns. Staying in the United States and Britain's Prince Andrew and his accuser, Virginia Dufresne, have settled their lawsuit in New York. The royal was accused of sexual assault. The Duke will pay an undisclosed sum. Well, earlier I spoke to reporter Ollie Barrett. I began by asking him to remind us of the background to this case. Virginia Dufresne was uh, accusing Prince Andrew of having assaulted her three times when she was 17, and she said that those three occasions were all linked to the late sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Prince Andrew had always denied those allegations. His legal team had tried to get the case completely thrown out, but when a judge had rejected those attempts, the case was set to proceed, a civil case in the United States. And we were expecting that Prince Andrew would be deposed under oath within weeks, and then the case would be heard later this year. Prince Andrew's legal team said that he wanted there to be a jury trial so that he could clear his name of these allegations. Well, with this settlement that's now been announced, that means that that opportunity to clear his name that he said he wanted has gone away, but effectively so has the case that Virginia Dufresne was bringing against him. So, Ollie, tell us about this settlement. Do we have any idea of what he paid out to Virginia Dufresne? Uh, he did issue a statement after that deal was reached. That's right. And the statement doesn't accept 
guilt. It doesn't uh, make an admission of guilt or accept any liability. It does express, uh, in Prince Andrew's uh, words, regret at his association with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, it does say he never intended to malign Miss Dufresne's uh, character. And it commits to a settlement which appears to be in two parts, partly to Virginia Dufresne herself, but also partly to a victim's rights charity. There is no figure given. Uh, the reporting, though, in this country suggests that there is no way that this isn't in the millions of pounds in that combination of those uh, two parts of this settlement. Prince Andrew, of course, had already been stripped of his royal titles, his patronages, his military titles. Those will not be coming back as a result of this settlement. That much is clear. Buckingham Palace not making any public comment at this stage. And senior royals clearly hope that this draws some kind of resolution under the affair so that the uh, Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations this year, later this year, won't be overshadowed by all of this. But lots of questions remain, not least how much Prince Andrew is paying to Virginia Dufresne and exactly where that money comes from. OK, Ollie Barrett in London, thank you for that. Well, there have been many contentious issues in the last few years as the country battled through COVID and masks have been near the top of them. Now, the requirement for school children to wear them in class could be off the agenda as soon as next week, according to reports. Well, joining me to discuss more is Senator Pauline O'Reilly of the Greens, Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems at DCU, and parenting journalist Jen Hogan. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, on this issue, um, Jen, and you've, you've written about it today, um, when, where you've talked about the imposition that masks have put on children in schools. What's your big concern about mask wearing in schools currently? Well, I suppose when you look at it in the wider uh, societal context, we have removed restrictions for most other, for most, in most other aspects of society. It's possible to go to the pub, to a nightclub, meet up with a stranger, vaccinated or unvaccinated, the COVID pass is gone, but we're still expecting children to continue um, as, if the, as if no change has been made at all. School is still a very different place for them. And I've been speaking to a lot of parents, teachers, child development experts, and students themselves over the last week in particular, and, and they, want to, you know, they want a bit of normality back too. And, and both, the, the um, child development experts that I spoke to in, for, in relation to the piece today, both of them reported seeing anecdotal evidence that masks were now, the burden of it was, was becoming greater and that it was evident that children were feeling the effects, whether it be that you have the, perhaps the teenager who retreats behind their mask in school. I have parents reporting to me that their children are upset wearing masks, that they're not, you know, their speech isn't coming on, that they're not mixing as well. There's the social, the emotional development, the emotional impacts, learning to read the social cues, perhaps not understanding the teacher, teachers themselves telling me that they find the masks difficult to wear because that, you know, they're trying to teach young children. They know children rely on this, children with additional needs also struggling too. And there's, it, it, I suppose when we look at it overall, it's the restrictions as a whole, I suppose, that I'm concerned about. I'd mm. like to see them as a whole be lifted for children when we look, as I said, the wider societal context. Do you think parents might be split on this? Well, there would be some parents mm -hmm. and, and teachers indeed and, you know, um, 
experts in this area who'd worry about de development issues for children. There are other parents and families for whom this offers reassurance. Absolutely, and that's why I think we need to move to a situation where it, it becomes about personal choice. And for parents who want their children to continue wearing masks and teachers who want to continue wearing masks, that that's, that's acceptable for them to do so too. But it needs to go back to being personal responsibility and parental choice and you know, letting parents make the decision that they feel is best for their children. Okay, Anthony, um, parental responsibility, personal choice. What do you think about the issue of masks in schools now? Is it time to let them go? If you look at how schools are operating now, there are two things that are affecting schools. One is social distancing, because so many Irish classrooms are too small. So a lot of children are being disrupted because they're being taught somewhere outside the main classroom. They can't gather together as they did before. Masks are probably the lesser imposition. Right now, Omicron case rates are very high amongst children, and we're seeing increasing numbers of children admitted to the children's hospitals, which is relatively new, but just reflects, reflects a number of cases. Yeah, tell us about that, because I think the numbers, um, we've got 4,160 COVID mm. cases today, and we're hearing that 637 people are in hospital mm. with COVID. That, that's a fall over the last few weeks, which is great. But it, in children, the numbers have been going up. And that, that's the problem we've, we've been facing because the age profile of infections has shifted. So there's a lot more infections proportionately in younger people because they're not vaccinated. I think about half the children under 12 are vaccinated at the moment, which is not really enough. Now that number is going up but the vaccination programme in children has been slowed by capacity issues as much mm. as anything else. There's only so much the HSE public health people can do. We know looking at it in a, in a wider sense that this virus is extraordinarily mm. infectious. WHO are saying that it really has to be an imperative for every country to bring transmission numbers down. And in schools, we can do that with ventilation, air filtration, masks and social distancing. So you think right now with the vaccine uptake as it is in, mm. in five to 12 year olds that now is not the time to remove masks? No, now, I think now is not the time. Uh, there have been a number of, of investigations to answer the question that Jen <laughs> raised about how does wearing masks affect children? And there aren't any really good large studies that I can find. The ones that I have found and the advice say from people like CDC who have consulted with US experts on this, is they believe the effects are very modest. And by comparison with the benefit of avoiding infection, or reduced numbers of infections, what, what, what it's do you worth say, paying. Yeah, what do you say what to does, that, there's Jen? A couple of points there. I suppose, first of all, only time is going to tell us about yeah. the, the consequences of the impacts. And it's only when we remove the restrictions will we really see what the consequences yeah. of this are and the long-term impact. So I don't think we can necessarily take comfort from that. And the point of vaccination, and I say this having nailed my flag to the mast many times, mm. my children are vaccinated. Mm. I completely support vaccination, including mm. my three, five to 11-year-olds. Mm. Two of my children actually got their first vaccine and then got COVID and obviously had to wait then uh, till this weekend actually before they can get their second vaccination. But the uptake is low. 
And again, I'm speaking to parents about vaccination all the time, and there isn't much that can be done short of mandating vaccines to really encourage parents to take up. Yes, there's been delays because children had COVID. Yes, perhaps there's capacity issues. But at the same time, there are huge numbers of parents who do not want to get their children vaccinated. Are you vaccinated. saying, Jen, there's no good time to do this, there's essentially? There's not going to be. Short of actually mandating vaccines for this age group, we are not going to... We're not. It's not possible to, to just insist that we have this sudden uptake. Parents have different reasons for dis for for, for being wary about vaccines. Perhaps their children have had COVID and they've seen quite a mild dose and they don't feel and they want to what about the hospital numbers that, that, that Anthony mentioned yeah. there and the fact that we are seeing a rise are, in children so presenting it, with COVID What would be nice for hospitals. parents, again, is to hear, is that with or because of COVID? That's the thing that would, would be helpful for parents to be aware. But we're also told the flu is more, is more dangerous to children. As a parent who has recently been through, through it with her own kids, mm. And I do appreciate every situation is very different and people have different reactions when they, when they catch the virus and people have different experiences of it. But it was thankfully a very, very mild dose for all seven of them and they're different ages and it was yeah. very mild and I'm very relieved and yeah. very grateful for that. Just to bring you back to a point that Jen made earlier, like when you leave the school environment, mm -hmm. everything else is opened up so adults can go out, they can live their lives, they can go to pubs, mm -hmm. they can go to clubs, mm -hmm. they can go out for meals, there's no mask wearing requirement there and yet it is a very different, there's a disconnect in our our schools. Would you accept that that's problematic and yes. that, that it isn't actually working in controlling the virus? There, there is a disconnect in our schools. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The question is what you should do about it. And our take on it would be that this is a nasty virus. It makes a small proportion of children extremely sick and some of them die. And that's happened in Ireland. Most children, you're absolutely right, most children uh, get COVID, they're sick for a few days, they get better but there's a proportion of children who don't. We don't know what the long-term effects of this virus are on children, and we're not going to know probably for another year. But the indications from the early studies in the US are that children get long COVID at a lower rate than adults, which is good. Again, it's very positive. Would you put a time frame on it, though, in terms of for mask wearing? When you say, you know, now with, with the cases as they are, do you think the cases should have to go down to a certain number? Is there a time I, you have in mind, end of the school term? I think we've been, I think we've been cutting ourselves. We're saying it's back to normal. We never go back to normal. I remember when HIV hit and everyone said, oh, this is a disaster. And actually, sexual habits changed permanently when HIV arrived and have never changed back. We have very little experience in rich Western countries of living with an, an endemic mm. virus like COVID. But we used to. We used to live with TB. And again, I just about remember TB because it was going out as a major mm. problem when I was a teenager. But COVID is here. It is not going to go away it is not going to get any better. And are you saying for as long as it, as it is here yes. that, that children should be wearing masks that, in school? And that may be for the foreseeable future. Right, okay. And, um, not, and not just children. I think mask wearing will, should remain a common practice amongst adults as well, in appropriate situations, like public transport, like shops. Right. Let's talk about that, because that's something that government is considering, um, and they will be speaking to NEFIT, and NEFIT will make their decision on that, not just for schools, but mm. um, use of masks in, in, in shops and in public transport and in other indoor settings. Going back to schools, though, um, and the government have taken NEFIT advice on board and always gone with that. What's the feeling, do you think, in government on this one? 
Look, I, I suppose there, there's a feeling that you're getting from, from meeting with your constituents. Uh, that, that's the first thing. Mm. But um, I think that, you know, with respect, I don't think we can liken it to something like HIV because I don't think it's realistic to talk about wearing masks for small children every day for the foreseeable mm. future. Mm. I think it's quite depressing for them. Mm. Um, and I would agree with some of the points that Jen makes, but I, I would lie, you know, nowhere near at the level that, that Jen would, would, would uh, speak about either. I think that we are going to see an end to mask wearing. I think that that's the correct thing to do, but we have to do it at the best time and the safest time for children. Um, and we've always said as a government that we were going to look at it again at the so end of this month. When is a good time? When's a safe time? Because we're hearing now that it could be considered at the end next week. So the schools are on well, midterm break and when they're mm -hmm. back at school, um, the start of, of March, um, that, that, that will be the time when masks won't be worn. Well, I know that this is, this is not a, probably a 100% satisfactory answer, but we are going to have to wait and see what Neffet say on Thursday. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, there, there is a concern there over 14,000 teachers are out with the virus at the moment. So that's obviously part of, part of what has to come into it. But I also think that realistically and from speaking to families, um, young children are not all wearing masks in schools. That's just probably the reality. Yeah. And you're finding that some children are doing it, others aren't. And people are being identified as the mask wearers or the non-mask wearers, which isn't helpful for them either. Mm. They could be much more successful in secondary school, but there has been a difficulty in primary school. But it, it's hard for children, like, no matter what anyone says and wherever the research, I think we all know as, as parents mm. that it is difficult yeah. for children to understand mm why this is going on so long. Yeah. We have to think of their health and we have to think of their mental well-being as well. Okay, well, let's get an insight into what they're thinking in schools. Earlier, I spoke to Matt Melvin, principal at St. Etchen School in Kinnegad. I asked him if he would welcome the mask requirement going. Um, well, I, I'm happy enough to follow the public health advice so long as it's driven by data and expertise and not emotion. So if people think that that is it's not necessary to have them, of course, it'd be much better that we could move gradually back to the kind of school and education we had pre-pandemic. Like it's almost impossible to think that two years ago, someone said children from third to sixth class would be wearing masks and pods and bubbles and you wouldn't have all the fun activities in school. So it would be great. Hopefully it would be great if we can do it. But certainly uh, from our experience, uh, the pandemic hasn't gone away. We still have quite a few cases to deal with in school, certainly less than a month ago, but still uh, absenteeism is much higher than it was before. And it's still a challenge. So I, I hope I hope it can be done and I hope it can be done safely. And I hope we don't have to, we don't regret it. The week off next week that we'd have would certainly be a help in that regard too. So how many COVID cases are you dealing with at the moment there in your school in Kinnegad, Matt? And how have health authorities reacted to those cases? Uh, not very proactively recently, but I suppose, you know, people aren't sick. But for instance, in, in uh, the data here, in, in, um, in January, we had 42 cases and so far in February, we've had 22. So it's less than it was. We have two staff out at the moment. We would have had nine staff out at the beginning of January. So certainly it is improving, but it's still challenging. Are you concerned about contact tracing in the schools and what happens when you inform the HSE contact tracing teams about cases in the classroom? 
they have they they rarely ring back um, at the moment, and they would have in the past. But I mean, we we send out the text alerts to people. We may ring people in pods, uh, and they get antigen tests. And I, I'm pretty happy that people are following those advice. I'm also pretty happy, and I was skeptical about it, but but I do think the mass certainly helped. Uh, before Christmas and mitigating it and possibly in January as well. So, I, you know, I, I thought that the end of contact tracing in, in September was a very poor move by public health, but certainly I think the mask wearing was pretty well adhered to and it did work. And that's why, you know, I'd like to see it gone, but I'd like to be sure that there's a good reason for it to go. Matt Melvin, Principal at St. Etchen School in Kindergad, thank you for joining us tonight. And Jen, something that Matt was mentioning there about contact tracing in our schools, um, it has been very haphazard. So in many ways, we actually don't have a true figure of, mm. of the case numbers in our schools. And no. that's a problem when it comes to people making that decision on whether or not to remove masks. It's a huge problem. And when it went, I mean, I don't think that we necessarily, I, I understood or just sort of the time, one aspect of their reason to remove it. They didn't want children missing school unnecessarily. But what they could have done is perhaps remove the need for isolation while continuing with contact tracing. You know that that and allow the situation as as exists in primary school, where children can attend on a negative antigen test. They could have perhaps looked at that, but continued with the contact tracing. I mean, in terms of what's happening, certainly from my own personal experience, we're notified if there's a case in the class and mm. sent the school roll number and given the option to sign up for antigen tests. And then it's up to us if we continue along down that road. But one thing that is happening for close contacts, which I really would like to flag, is with, with the rules that are going on and are currently in existence. And I hope the government will look at this as well. We have 12 to 15 year olds who are fully vaccinated and when they're close contacts they're expected to act as if they're unvaccinated so they're missing school needlessly mm -hmm. among that age cohort are the third years and we've just announced or obviously we've just heard that the junior third is to go ahead as normal they haven't had a full year in school since they were in sixth class that was the last time they did a full year in school this year is not normal for any child in school but it's certainly not normal for them when they're missing so much school even if they're fully vaccinated and no word no indication yet that they will even yeah, yet require a situation with, the, with that polling, why aren't those 12 to 15 year olds who are fully vaccinated um, not in line for a booster? Well, I mean, that it should be coming up shortly. Um, that, that was certainly because what, what we had been told. We're dumping you know, vaccines, aren't we? Because they're out of date or because people got Omicron, so therefore they couldn't get boosted as they would have. Well, a lot of these kids have had, young people have had their vaccination August, September time. So, I mean, it would be, it would be about time for a booster. And hopefully, you know, that will be something that will be part of an announcement. I would be certainly hoping, as somebody who has, um, has children in that age group and younger, um, mm. But also, I think to go back to a previous point, it is quite concerning that the, that the figures for children and vaccination are fairly low. And I think that that continues to be a concern. Mm. So that has to be taken into account as well. Um, but also, I was wondering with the vaccination in kids who are aged 5 to 12, if we're hearing um, that the Omicron requires the booster shot, many parents might think we're getting over this wave now. Is there any point in my five-year-old getting two shots of a vaccine mm -hmm. that won't necessarily work against the Omicron variant? The vaccines do two things they, very well. They stop you dying and they stop you being admitted to hospital. They reduce your risk of transmission and there's really good data showing that that works within families. So what we think is happening at the moment is that ch infected children are driving transmission in families and that's spreading through to older people who are getting sick. Mm. And it's stopping that is one of the reasons why we would like to vaccinate younger children. 
it also protects other children in the class. Around one in a thousand children is a survivor of childhood cancer, for example. And not all of those children, but many of those children are effectively long-term immunosuppressed. And there are lots of other groups. We have, a fair, we have the highest proportion of children with cystic fibrosis on the planet. They're at quite high risk if they get COVID. So there's, it is to protect, it's primarily to protect others. It's the same reason we, we uh, vaccinate against measles. The people who die from measles are under 12 months, but we vaccinate kids over 12 months. So the ones under 12 months don't die. I want to bring up a point that someone has uh, tweeted um, to you, Jen. Not all parents agree mm -hmm. um, with your take. I want my children to continue to wear masks to protect others and themselves from the misery of COVID and long COVID. We need numbers far, far lower than they currently are. Well, I think if somebody wants to continue wearing a mask or their child to continue wearing a mask, they absolutely should. But you know the way transmission completely. works so yeah. that if, if, if others in the class aren't wearing the mask, mm -hmm. then the child who is wearing the mask is far less protected than if all yeah. their their schoolmates but, are. Again, I bring you back to what's happening in the context of wider society. Why is it only children that we're looking at in this case? Why, we, if we're looking at removing the need for adults to, to wear masks, or perhaps maybe the advice will remain in place, but it might not be a case that adults are obliged to wear masks. Why should children be treated differently in this regard? We've been told that the higher grade masks offer more protection, so perhaps that's a solution for people who are concerned. And I, I do absolutely understand why somebody might worry, particularly if they have a vulnerable child. I, I totally get that. But when we're looking at the situation that we're in and we're looking at the wider societal context, we are asking children to continue with restrictions when, we're not, when adults don't have to. It, it just, it's, it's not fair besides anything else. Is that else. a problem, Pauline? I, I think that one of the challenges that we forget is that, I mean, children are different to adults in the sense that you're putting them into a situation mm. which they may not be emotionally mature enough to deal with. And that kind of personal choice thing is quite a challenge. So actually what you're doing is taking on probably the decision-making yeah. of your parents mm -hmm. in that situation. And that's what I've always had the concern with in relation to schools. Um, so, that it you isn't know, the child's choice, it's, it's, it's whatever not, their it, parents it, are happy it's, with. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's also, if you're, if, you're, if you're lifting it and then giving over personal choice, um, how many children in a setting where at that stage of their life they're really trying to get on with friends? Are they really going to put themselves in a situation where they're different to everyone else? But look, mm -hmm. in the end of the day, we have to take what Neffet says on board. We, um, we've always said that and we have to and, make sure the children are safe. other restrictions? We know all the restrictions were lifted in the North today um, and people are very happy about that there, probably for the most part. And talk about the February 28th on masks in indoor settings, in shops and on public transport being removed um, here. Um, was that something you'd be in favour of, Pauline? Again, and I don't want to sound like a broken record on this, Claire, but again, I do think we have to go back to NEFET advice. Personally, you know, I take a train every week from Galway. That's a fairly lengthy journey, and I think I'll probably continue to wear a mask yeah. myself personally. And Anthony, you'd say no to that. I'd say that wearing masks is a social act that protects yourself and the people around you. Should and it be mandated beyond February 28th? I think so, yes. Because otherwise it makes it too difficult. Pushing everything onto personal choice is a way for the state to say, we've abdicated our responsibilities. Public health is an ancient state responsibility. It's been a state responsibility for hundreds of years. 
just like national security. Good. And Jen, would you like to see would you like to see changes happening and and that need that mandate for masks mm, to I, be removed? I, I'd like to see month? it go to personal choice. Um, a bit like Pauline, I might choose to wear a mask if I was on public transport as well. Mm. But it's a very different situation, I think, mm. to schools. And I do believe, sorry, agree as well. Parental choice, absolutely. But your parents are always the people who make the decisions for children. That's 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 I suppose not being old enough and responsible enough and having the maturity to make those decisions themselves. All right. <laughs> okay. My thanks to Jen Hogan and Anthony Staines. Pauline will be staying with us as up next we take a look at the cost of living in rural Ireland. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Farmers have been in discussions with Dunn stores throughout today over the pressures being faced by the sector over costs. Here's what the IFA president, Tim Cullinan, said to Virgin Media News earlier on today. I think, look, we need to be honest, and I need to be honest with the consumer out there as well. The price of food has to go up now. We cannot sustain the, the massive increases that we have seen over the last number of, of months now. And you know, a price increase has to come right back down to the primary producer. Well, it's just one example of one sector feeling the squeeze as the cost of living plays havoc right across the country and it shines a light on the difficulties being faced in rural areas. Well, here to discuss that is Senator Pauline O'Reilly from the Green Party, John Gibbons, environmental journalist, and Michael Fitzmaurice, independent TD. And to come to you first, Michael, we had to hear there what the IFA had to say on, the, on their grievances with regard to the prices and what the supermarket's giving them for their produce. They're saying they aren't being paid enough and people should expect to pay more for their food in the supermarket aisles. Uh, do they have a point on that? Well, first of all, just to put it into context, um, obviously for any farmer they've used diesel in 2020, March, April 2020, um, diesel was about 41 cent. It is uh, hidden for a euro today per litre. Um, if you look at electricity, no more than people in urban areas or right around the country, they've been affected. If you look at meal prices, um, meal prices gone up 30 to 40 percent. Um, and you know, you can't sque keep squeezing um, the person, the producer. And while people might be, you know, glad to see all the, the major retailers um, having each week having a promotion on and they're selling a chicken at so much and they're selling beef at so much mm. and they're selling vegetables at so much or Brussels sprouts, 
it is a race to the bottom. And while you may be able to bring it in from other countries, the likes of vegetables and that, um, do we want good quality food and pay a price for it? Or do we want a race to the bottom where we will put our farmers out, out of production and have a, worse, a, a lesser quality of food. And this is the decisions people have to make. Yeah, you, you also saying, look at transport as okay, well. Just, just on that issue, though, about what you're paying for your weekly shop, are you saying to people watching at home who are really looking at their bills at the moment and they're going and they're doing their shopping and they're seeing that actually food prices are going up, that they should expect to pay more? Um, in these straitened times, that they should expect to pay more for their food simply because um, the, the farmers' argument that they're not getting enough. Can I make it very clear? Wherever the problem is, it is not with the person that's producing the food. And whether it's with the retailer or whether it's not uh, expensive enough, the, the farmer that's producing the food will go out of business if we keep going down the road we're going at the moment. That's the reality. We need those farmers. They are the backbone of rural Ireland. They were the backbone of this country when, we, when, our, when the rest went building and everything else went bust. There is ways forward, but people must realise that good food isn't produced cheaply. OK, good food isn't cheap, John Gibbons. Would you agree with that and that people should expect to pay more because farmers are arguing that they get so very little for what they're producing for our supermarkets at the moment? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Prices are rising all around the place. It is inevitable that we're going to see uh, rises in food prices. This is going to hit people. And I think we need to look at, for example, protecting people who are most vulnerable to that. But among the most vulnerable people in this are, of course, primary producers. In other words, the farmers who, as Michael described, they're getting basically push, pushed out of business. If you take, say, over the last 10 years, cost of, of food prices in Ireland have fallen by about 10%. This is the prices that farmers are getting for their food. In the same period, farmers' uh, costs have risen. This will be up to about 2020, have risen by about 8 to 10%. So basically, farmers are about one-fifth worse off for what they're producing in 2020 than they were in 2010. Now, that is exactly as Michael described it. That is a race to the bottom. That is what, what's also known as a commodity trap. That means, basically, farmers have become... They're at the mercy of, for example, the, 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 the main the multiples, first of all, the supermarkets who are driving prices, and also, of course, the people who they're selling their produce to, yeah, the, 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 the dairy PLCs, the agri PLCs, who are setting the prices. The farmers are price takers in both so cases. The, should not the pressure be on them rather than the consumer at the end of the day and what they're paying for their chicken or for their ham in the supermarket? Well, I think, to take a quick step back, I think the problem, the missing ingredient in Irish agriculture is the organic component. The, what you find worldwide is that the organic sector is the fastest growing sector of agriculture worldwide. And the key thing about organic agriculture is that it, it is a low input, lower output, high margin business. Our problem is we have a high input, high output, low margin model. That worked, Claire, up until uh, fertilizer prices exploded, up until diesel prices exploded. Yeah. We were able to disguise the, the hidden costs of agriculture because of relatively low prices for these things. Once that, once those prices went up, farmers are now left exposed. Okay. And they're left to the model where they're getting far too little for their commodity product. Now, farmers will say, OK, the couple of things you mentioned, their price of diesel being one, and then the government has this carbon tax that is going to be, you know, increased again come May, and shouldn't there be a freeze on that? Isn't that an argument to be made in this time? And isn't the pressure really on now to justify the carbon tax increase come May? 
Look, I, I, think, I think fundamentally climate and carbon tax has been used as the bogeyman here. Um, and actually, it's paying for a lot of the things that are going to get us out of the problems that we're now facing. We're, we're in the middle of two crises. One is the cost of living, and I think we're all agreed on that. And the other is a climate crisis. And we can't forsake one for the other because actually the actions that we need to take uh, can align. And when you look at carbon tax, I think it's, it's all too easy and it's been used as a political football that carbon tax is the problem. And Michael spoke there about the increase on, on, the, on a tank uh, of petrol. That's absolutely correct. We all know it. Um, and those in rural Ireland feel it more because they're travelling longer distances. Um, and that means farming families who are already have their pin to the collar. Um, but if, if the, you know, when, when we looked at it last with a 35% increase on a litre, 2.5 cent of that was actually carbon tax. And carbon tax is, 1.5 billion of carbon tax is actually going into supporting small farming families. And the rest is fuel allowance and also retrofitting you, homes. And I, it's entirely I, I, for that purpose. Would you agree we with that, that the percentage that we're talking about on a litre well, of diesel or a litre of fuel is very small compared to, I suppose, the other taxes that every, are already in every place two there, and Michael? Every 2.5 cent for the last number of years is 2.5 cent every year. And over four years is 10 cent. And over five years is 12.5. So it adds up. Second of all, um, Pauline is correct in saying that some of the carbon tax is being earmarked to go back to the farming community. We have taken in two billion so far in carbon tax as a country, and not one red cent has gone into it as yet. Next year, am I, am I correct in well, saying? Well, I, I think well, that, no, I, the, I understand that the some budget, of the REAP scheme well, actually did go towards no, it. No, uh, if you look at the budget, that's, that's what the minister With due respect, to if you look yeah. at the budget, um, it is next year that it's earmarked for the REAP scheme, and I do welcome that some bit will be going back, because if you look at it clear in rural Ireland, um, and the announcement last week, um, the 20% for a person going on public transport. And look at it, we've no problem with that. We welcome that. But that's not a lot of good to somebody that has mm. to drive in a rural area that you might have to go 10, 15, 20 miles before you'd even get a bus. So we need to put things into perspective of what we can do. On top of that, um, Ireland is something like 2% organic. Um, and the only problem is more people, in my opinion, would go organic you know, we had two different factories that were buying organic food in Ireland. Unfortunately, in the, East, the EU, give the go-ahead, it's amalgamated into one. So you have only one bar. There isn't the promotion done. And on top of that, you can't just turn off the switch tomorrow. The cows are going out within the next two months or the next month in, in, in maybe in areas where there's good land, um, eating the grass. The, you cannot just turn one light off and turn another okay. light on overnight. You have to give time for people to look at the situations they're in. On top of that, Claire, we must remember yeah. that fertiliser has nearly tripled in price. Yeah, uh, um, and we've heard about that and the cost of, of um, meal prices, fertiliser and diesel too. Um, and the argument being made by Michael Fitzmaurice, when you look at, I suppose, some of the government incentives, like 20% of public transport and all of that, you know, that there aren't the alternatives there for people in rural Ireland. They do have to travel long distances and they are saying we are being most affected, one, by the cost of living and by carbon taxes, which they don't feel are going directly to help them in their lives right now. Well, I think as Pauline said, first of all, the carbon tax is a small, but it's also a predictable tax. We know we, we, this was set out over a 10-year period, so we know where, where it brings us. And the point about carbon taxes is to gradually 
tax carbon out of the system and to do it progressively so that we all can plan for it. Now, the predictable taxes like carbon tax, especially when they're hypothecated, they are not a problem. They also give us money to solve other issues. The problem is the volatility. For example, we continue to import over 90% of our energy on this island is still being imported mostly in the form of liquid fuels from all kinds of volatile regions. And we are price takers. We're at the mercy of these regions. Now, we have got to accelerate our move towards energy independence through the electrification of our transport system. And this, by the way, Michael, before you say it, is not a pipe dream. For example, I believe our urban future is essentially an urban, is a public transport future and our rural future is a future is, of electrified <laughs> private cars. Is this in the argument we've made, that's well and good, but that's like a long-term, a, a long term, a medium to long-term. And right now, the carbon tax being in place at this very point where there are no alternatives for people for that sustainable option, that it's unfair, especially on people in rural areas. Okay, if we needed to make relief, if you needed relief for people in relation to this tax, the one you would do is you would adjust the VAT. Because, for example, as the price of a, of a, uh, a gallon of diesel rises, the VAT take, the government's VAT take increases with it. So if the government wanted to, to ease the sting of temporary diesel would prices... Would you be OK with that as an environmental journalist, that to cut the VAT on, on sort of diesel petrol prices at the pump, all of that? I would be far happier with that than t tampering with the carbon taxes, because the carbon with, taxes give us predictability. Would you agree with that, Pauline? I think, you know, that we're focusing on one element here. There was a lot of measures announced in relation to cost of living. And um, one of those which we discussed today in the Shannon um, is the bill that will you know, give 200 euro to, to each family in relation to, um, to their electricity costs. There is the 20%, but we're also rolling out Connecting Ireland, which will see an increase of 53% um, of the population currently on public transport. It'll increase to 70%. There's also medical costs uh, for, for oh, prescription yeah, and we know costs. that all in the suite of measures. Yeah, so there's, there's a large suite of measures there. Will it be enough? I think it has to be looked at again if we are finding okay. that it's going up and up. Briefly, Michael, do you think it'll be enough? I, I don't. First of all, um, you know, Pauline talks about um, the measures that were done last week. Tell me a person on 35,000 other than the electricity how they will be helped that's living in a rural area, they won't. Um, in relation to what John said, yes, there's new trains on the go mm. at the moment, they're diesel electric, and they can work as far as, um, I think it's Maynooth they're going to work on. And when you talk to Inroad Airden, they'll say the rest of the country, will, they'll be using the diesel down along. What you, what you have to realise is that we won't um, change our country in a matter of a year. It's going to take eight to 10 years before we'll have offshore. And we need, at the moment, today, next week, and next month. That's when we need right. to help the people in the rural areas. OK, we'll have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Pauline O'Reilly and Michael Fitzmaurice. John will be staying on as after the break we discuss the summer getaway as travel agents warn customers to book early to get the best deals. Welcome back. It's been a disruptive two years for the travel industry, but with COVID seemingly on the wane, many are looking at foreign shores for their summer getaway. But how much will that now cost us and what damage will those trips 
do to the environment. Well, I'm joined in studio by uh, John Gibbons, who's still with us, environmental journalist, and by Jackie Spain, travel agent at JK Travel. And to come to you first, Jackie, let's talk about demand. Are people really seizing the moment and keen to book that holiday abroad? And as a result, are the prices shooting right back up? Um, good evening, Claire. Yes, very, very happy to report that sales are up and it's all been helped by the easing of restrictions um, back in January. It's, um, I think most agents will agree that we're off to somewhat of a slow start, but um, once those restrictions were eased, um, away it went. Um, bookings are very brisk and people, there's a pent-up appetite for travel. Um, it is somewhat having a knock-on effect with the price of flights, as is a sense of urgency about booking mm -hmm. flights at the moment. Um, therefore, when people are pricing today um, and they are looking to book possibly tomorrow, they may see uh, a significant increase. Okay, and that's down to, I suppose, demand that's there. Also, this cost of living crisis, I guess, that's affecting everyone and aviation fuel and all of that comes into it as well. Also, I think um, the fact that most of us haven't travelled um, in perhaps three years and the small incremental increase that would have occurred over that period is now being realised in one fell swoop, if you like. Um, and so people are noticing that increase along with um, the, I suppose, as I said er earlier, the urgency for booking. And we're advising people to have their deposits ready at the time when they're making the inquiry okay. because we're seeing it day after day, people making an inquiry. We had one incident where a lady went in to do a little bit of shopping, perhaps no more than 40 minutes um, for a trip to Orlando that she'd made an inquiry about previously, having come out deciding to, to book the holiday, only to discover that the flights had increased by 1,600 euros. Did she still book the holiday? She did. Right, okay, that shows you uh, there's certainly, well, there's money out there and there's probably also a desperation for people to get away. Um, to you, John, on this, what do you think of this? You know, we're seeing this big surge in demand. Um, your thoughts on holidaying abroad and seizing that chance to get on a plane once again? Yeah, I totally understand. We've all been locked down for a while and, and people are anxious to get moving again. But we do really need to be very careful about heading back to where we, we left. So for example, in 2019, there were 35 million passenger movements in and out of the island of Ireland, 35 million. This is with our population here of 5 million. So it basically means we're doing an enormous amount of flying. Now, um, since 2005, the number of people flying in the EU has risen by 60%. Now, this is not a harmless so pastime, Claire. There's enormous environmental uh, and emissions impacts from this. Aviation globally is the fastest increasing source of carbon emissions. And also those carbon emissions, by the way, are being dumped into the place where they're doing the most harm, which is the upper atmosphere. And they're adding to the global warming that is already destabilizing our climate system and leading to uh, floods, uh, wildfires, and more extreme weather conditions. Are you saying stay at home and don't get on a plane again because we are an island? So sure. if people want to get away and they want a bit of sun on their bones, chances are they're going to have to fly unless they get that, you know, long ferry trip uh, to France. 
Yeah, I think we maybe need, need to rediscover a little bit more about the, the, the pleasures, if you like, of, of slowing down a little bit and actually taking our time to get to and from places. And I know some employers, for example, are now uh, negotiating with employees to give them a, a little extra time to actually allow them to travel. So, for example, you can get to France uh, on the ferry for about, it's about 20 hours and, and bring your car, whatever. That's fine, um, but yeah. say you don't want to go to France, you want to go to Spain or Portugal, you want to go to Italy, are you suggesting then get the train or well, hire once a you, car the, the and great drive thing through Claire Europe, is, once you which get, is also adding, of course, to your carbon footprint? Well, yeah, yes and no. Say, for example, once you get to London or once you get to France, you then have access to a fantastic rail network that runs right throughout Europe, and most of that, by the way, is electrified. You can get an electric train from Paris down to Milan for about 25 or 30 euros, and you can do your work or stare out the window or whatever it is along the way. So we do need to really take a step back. And, and we, we had the discussion just before the break where we were talking about fuel and the taxes and so on. Now, a quick one for you. Petrol, we charge €258 Euros a tonne in carbon tax for petrol, €183 Euros a tonne carbon tax for diesel, and €0.08 cent okay. a tonne for aviation fuel. This is why these crazy cheap flights exist, because the aviation industry, and by extent its customers, are not paying oh, right. for the carbon or for the emissions uh, impacts of flying. Okay. Well, someone is making some money off it, Jackie, when you hear about prices um, for flights and for packages going up by €1,600 Euro in the space of minutes. On that one, what John was saying, is green tourism a growing trend? Are families sort of looking at other options, perhaps, at, at doing things, going by electric train to places, uh, maybe avoiding flights? Is that um, getting demand? No, I, I wouldn't say they're avoiding flights. Um, I would say, however, they're perhaps being a little bit more cautious um, about where they're staying and perhaps checking the eco ratings in the hotels. And indeed, there's nobody trying harder to do their bit for the environment than indeed the cruise companies who have really, they're, they're leading the way in terms of tourism when it comes to um, carbon emissions and reducing the, okay. the carbon footprint. They've also got excellent protocols in place right. to encourage people to travel. Okay, some food for thought um, and some good advice there. That is it from us, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.